Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, my book editor for Brown is the New White, and now Director of Strategic Communications for Democracy in Color. Hi, Charlene. Happy Martin Luther King Week. How is your family marking the occasion? Hey, Steve. Actually, funny that you should ask. So um, a few years ago, when my daughter was still a toddler, I decided to institute a new uh, custom and ritual in our home, which is that I don't usually bake, and I don't usually bake like really sugary uh, things. But the exception that I made was I told my daughter every year for Dr. King's birthday, we could make cupcakes and she could frost them with frosting and, you know, artificial color and sprinkles as a way to really make the holiday special. Uh, But also like the way I kind of explained it to her was that all the different colored frostings and decorations represent all, you know, all the different people and the different colored skin and different types of backgrounds and how they can all be together. And uh, what it's actually turned into is, A, yes, successfully something she looks forward to every year. She has the day off. We bake together. She gets to eat a lot of sugar. <laughs> and But it really genuinely gave us a chance through the years to talk again about Dr. King and his work and about uh, issues of race and racism. And she has, has had some really good questions that have come up in these conversations in a way that I think normally maybe we wouldn't have the chance. So it's become really a fun and actually meaningful thing for the two of us. And uh, as she says, the cupcakes at one point, she said, you know, the cupcakes have to be chocolate, right, Mom? Because Dr. King was brown. I said, yeah. <laughs> I thought, then she was like a toddler when she said that was really, really sweet. So we, I also bought her a book that I do recommend that I found in the store. It's called 28 Days in Black History That Changed the World. And I gave that to her as a gift. So each year I might, um, Dr. King's birthday, also try to get her a book on black history or something related. Cupcakes for justice. And, 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 That's right. Uh, rainbow sprinkles personifying the Rainbow Coalition. There you go. Um, I, don't, I may be missing something on the significance of cupcakes. I ran into Nancy Pelosi on a flight back from D.C. one day and that she was sitting there eating a cupcake, right? So there's clearly <laughs> actually something going on there. And actually, you're, making me, you're reminding me that in terms of the book piece, this is both how nerdy and political I am or whatever. So when I f- first met my wife, our first actual, we're going to our second date was on Martin Luther King's birthday. I've forgotten all about this, so this moment. And um, we uh, went to Tilden Park, and she was all in the nonviolence. She had been in the Gandhi, but she hadn't known as much about Dr. King. So I, the gift I got her was the book of Dr. King's writings. So it was one of the first things that I ever actually oh, got wow. her when we first got together. Nice. So. Smooth. Smooth. Yeah, it, it worked. <laughs> it, it clearly worked. That's what so, I mean. Nice. Yeah. Good move. So in light of this being the season of Dr. King's birthday and holiday, it is our... Um, honor and with excitement that today's episode, we will be looking at today's current events, what's happening in this world and in our country right now through the lens of Dr. King's life and legacy. And I keep kind of picturing him <laughs> and his expression and, you know, sort of what would he say? What are, would he be some of the thoughts he would share as he was, you know, observing what we're going through right now. There's a Boondocks commercial or a, or a GIF or whatever where somebody's saying, if Dr. King were here, he would be saying it's like a conservative person and then the young Boondocks guy goes over and he starts punching the dude out and then it fades like to black and whatnot. So, Not that we are encouraging anything violent associated with Dr. King. Yeah. 
but there's um, a lot of hypocrisy and appropriation of his legacy. Yes, that's true. But we're going to talk about what we feel that he would really, some of those are his true values and his work, and, and much of it also what we're going to be sharing today are people who are really carrying on the legacy of his work, which is very exciting. So we're going to move, like I said, from reflection to action and discuss how this current trial, which is, um, again, the, we are in the moment of the impeachment trial that began this week in the U.S. Senate. We're going to discuss how this trial creates an opportunity to advance the work of taking back the Senate this year. Because like I always say, yes, folks, it's not just a presidential election year. There are some really important races taking place this year, and that includes many Senate races. Out of all those races, Democrats need to pick up three seats, plus winning the White House. There are 12 states that are potentially winnable, very too possibly winnable for the Democrats. And we will talk about which states those are and how to win those seats. Then we're going to close this episode with an interview with one of the most exciting 2020 candidates for Senate in the country right now, Christina Sinsun Ramirez. Christina was in town last week, and we had a chance to sit down and talk with her, and it was just a great talk. Yeah, I was really glad that we were able to connect with her. I do think that she's an example of some of the people in the political arena who are, in fact, carrying on the legacy and the mission um, of Dr. King. Yeah, I was really inspired by her. And you're right. Like, I'm always looking for both personally people during these times to give me that lift and remind me that the, the good fight is going on by good people. And she was definitely one of those people. So, OK, let's get started. So, like I had said, the U.S. Senate began the impeachment trial of Trump this week. And this is just the third time in U.S. history that a president has faced an impeachment trial. I wanted to check in with you, Steve. What are your thoughts so far observing and following this week on this trial that's now underway? Yeah, I keep seeing this through the lens of history, right? And so, I mean, despite Mitch McConnell and the Republican senators doing everything in their power to hide the truth and block things coming out and protect Trump, the fact that we're even having an impeachment trial is remarkable. As you're saying, it's historic, right? And there's poetic justice in the fact that a man who rose to power by fanning the flames of white racial resentment and white supremacy is for the first time in his life facing accountabilities for his actions. And it's all happening around Martin Luther King's birthday and being led by people from marginalized groups, those with the least basis for belief in democratic institutions based upon you know historical record and whatnot. And so if you look at it, right, in terms of who has actually brought this about, it took the election of an historic number of women and people of color to Congress to take back the House. It took the leadership of a woman, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, to coordinate the impeachment process and actually get him impeached and get it over to the trial of the Senate. And in a really beautiful bit of historical symbolism, the person who physically carried over the articles of impeachment of this racist and misogynistic president was a black woman, Cheryl Johnson, who was the clerk of the House of Representatives. That's so, such great context just to remind us all about because that is how it happened. And I think so many people forget. And those are people who helped make this all happen and bring us to this point today. Uh, there is a great video of Ms. Johnson leading the managers into the Senate to present the articles of impeachment to the Senate. And we're going to play that clip right now. The House of Representatives to inform the Senate. The House has passed HRS 798 a resolution appointing and authorizing managers for the impeachment trial of Donald John Trump, President of the United States. 
the message will be received. And just to remember that Martin Luther King's actual birthday is January 15th, and so the delivery of the articles of impeachment was on King's actual birthday, which is completely appropriate and also historically resonant, right? Because King consciously connected the civil rights struggle to the principles of the Constitution. In fact, one of the very first speeches he gave as a leader, a civil rights leader, as a 26-year-old leading the Montgomery bus boycott, so shortly after the bus boycott began, he talked about how that struggle was actually directly connected to the principles of the Constitution. And now that same Constitution is being used to impeach and try to remove the white supremacists in the White House, and also because of the Constitution, each senator will have to go on the record and cast a vote for history as to which side they were on as our democratic institutions were under attack. Okay, so on that note, speaking of consequences of the votes of the senators, we're going to move on to our main topic of the day, taking back the Senate. Because as you know, those of us who have been following the news you know, are learning, there are a lot of senators who are not holding up, you know, not doing their constitutional duty and are not upholding the way that democracy should be working in our country and not working towards actual justice. And if people are mad about it and unhappy about it, the good news is you can actually do something about it this year. So obviously things would be different if Democrats controlled the Senate right now. And Steve, you put together a comprehensive column in The Nation that's available online right now, looking at the state of play with the Senate seats. I highly recommend everybody just check it out. The title of the article and the link we'll be putting in the show notes. So go there to find out how to read the article and get the link. And Steve, I know, again, you put in a lot of work. Tell us how you put this piece together. Uh, Well, with both hours and hours of blood, sweat, and tears, plus making extensive use of my now fully robust Microsoft Excel spreadsheet software that I spent the holidays downloading and that people were kind of mocking me for. There you go. That wasn't for nothing. Yes, right. (laughs) Put it to good use. Um, But I spent so much time on it because I really wanted to provide a resource to the movement. As you were saying, there's so much attention to the presidential race and that trying to think about where to focus our time and efforts on the Senate, which is obviously also very uh, critical, as we're seeing every day now with uh, with the impeachment hearings. So, but I didn't do it alone, right? It was, you know, it was really just a partnership, you know, with our own Dr. Julia Martinez Ortega, um, who, as we keep trying to remind people, is one of the nation's leading researchers on data and demographics. And so Julie really helped me design and build an analysis, an algorithm that we could rank the winnability of the all the Senate seats that are up for election this year so we can focus our time and energy in the most um, promising places. Fantastic. Right. So with that, let's go straight to the source and turn to our The Doctor is In segment with our friend and distinguished data scientist, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega, JD, PhD, and I'm going to add OG (laughs) and OMG. (laughs) All right. Let's give her a call. Doctor's office, please hold for Dr. Martinez Ortega. Hi, Julie. Are you there? Hi. How are y'all doing? Good. Thanks for joining us. Doctor, thank you for seeing us. I have this massive pain created by the fact that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are in charge of the United States Senate. (laughs) Yes, you're not alone. That one's been going around for the past several years now. 
<laughs> so let's talk about what we can do about it, right? As you know, I've been working on a way to analyze which Senate seats are most winnable. We did this kind of work in 2018, looking at House races, and now we're looking at Senate seats to see which ones be able to flip to, to, to take control of the body. And I really, uh, again, appreciate uh, the help you were able to provide with that. Um, so can you share with the listeners what we came up with? Yeah, so I was um, particularly excited about the direction you were going in because, um, you know, as we've discussed, it's uh, what the approach that you ended up taking is much more comprehensive than what most of the mainstream media and pundits and whatnot, or even, frankly, the Democratic strategists, so-called, um, what they're using to assess races. So conventional wisdom is to just look at the current polling data on the favorability of an incumbent and then make judgments about that, right? Maybe they'll also look at um, the challenger and how charismatic, exciting that person seems to be. The problem with just looking at polling data, though, is that it's just really capturing at this point in time what is, right? It's not telling us anything about what could be. Right. What are the underlying structural uh, things happening in a particular place, in this case, in a state that could really be, um, you know, determinative. So it's really failing to take into account that potential for an improved democratic performance. Right. Yeah. And that's really dangerous. I just want to highlight for everyone because it leads to ba- both bad strategy and wasted resources. Right. And this is really my, actually my favorite story from 2018 is that California 21 district, Central Valley of California, majority Latino district held by a Republican who had barely won it in 2014. And there was a major donor who wanted to invest in trying to flip that seat. And so she went to these different DC operatives and party people and asked about it. And they told her not to invest in that district because the polling wasn't favorable. But I told her to go back and challenge the polling. Right? It's a majority Latino, two thirds of Latinos in California vote Democratic. And the past races have been very close. And so there was potential there if you were to actually invest in turning out resources. So we connected that donor to the group Communities for New California. She does roots in United Farm Workers, ties within the community. They hired staff from those neighborhoods, knocked on doors, made calls, contacted 30,000 voters, and we won that seat by 862 votes. But if we had just looked at the polling, we would not have invested in the seat. You know what? I always think to myself, when you get Julie and Steve together, there's always a danger of a kind of uh, like I call it like a nerdapalooza or like a nerd fest. And you guys just just badass go down a rap serious rabbit hole. <laughs> just and, and I love it. And I think it's, a, you know, better you guys <laughs> than me. But uh, it's fascinating what you come up with. So I want to encourage people to go check out Steve's column in The Nation where you can see all of this nerdiness laid out, all the numbers and a nifty chart and uh, get really more into the meat of this analysis. And there are links to the underlying spreadsheet and methodology. And again, you can just have fun with checking out all the data that they pulled together. Uh, Julie, so I wanted to find out for the bigger picture, can you describe the factors the two uh, you and Steve looked at? Sure, so you know, we really tried to keep this simple and straightforward. Um, you can let me know whether you think that actually <laughs> worked out or not, but I, I feel like it is fairly, um, you know, easy to understand what we're getting at. So um, we are including polling because you know that is a, an in, an indicator. <clears throat> so we are including polling. That is uh, one important indicator of a group of things that should be considered. So the other three factors are, first, how close have Democrats come in winning recent statewide races? 
And that's to give us a sense of what's possible. So Stacey Abrams came within 1% of winning in Georgia. And Betho lost by just 2% in Texas. And that sort of information is really solid evidence of actual voter behavior and not just polling predictions, right? Second, we looked at the untapped pool of Democratic voters, especially the voters of color. Um, again, the place we see this perhaps most dramatically is Texas, right, where Bethel lost by 215,000 votes in a huge state. But there were 5.5 million, let me say it again, 5.5 million people of color, right, and of those Nearly 4 million of them were Latino, my fellow Mexican-Americans for the most part, who didn't vote, right? So you got 4 million people not voting who are Mexican-American, Latino, another 1.5 million people of color. And when you look at that relative to the 215,000 votes, that's really a ratio that needs to be considered when you're assessing a state, which is why we included that factor here. And then third, we looked at the relative strength of the in-state civic engagement infrastructure, right? So are there groups in the state with the history and track record of increasing turnout among Democratic voters? So groups like Communities for New California that Steve mentioned did all that great work in the California 21 would be a great example of this. And, you know, it's very recent that we saw um, how successful the groups in Virginia were on the ground. I mean, obviously there were some good strong candidates, ran good races, but that underpinning infrastructure, right, um, is what really helped transform Virginia into a, a blue state, has, you know, a blue state legislature just this past weekend, lots of crazy stuff happening um, in reaction to a lot of the really positive things that that new uh, legislature is going to be able to do there, right? They've taken control of all branches of government there over the past decade. Okay. So again, we need a net pickup of three Senate seats plus winning the White House. So what did our formula, Julie, reveal about which ones are the most winnable states? So there are 12 states that are potentially winnable and there are 13 Senate seats up in those states. And I know that sounds a little weird, but it's because Georgia has both of its Senate seats on the ballot this year. The first tier of the most winnable states are, drumroll please, Colorado, Arizona, and Georgia. And then we have our second tier that includes Texas, yay, Maine, North Carolina, and Iowa. And then we have our five additional keep hope alive states that are more long shots, but they're not impossible for us to win. That's great. Thanks, Julie. And I just want to, again, encourage all our listeners to check out Steve's column in The Nation. And that article covers all of this in more detail. And again, that link will be in our show notes. The link will also be available on our Democracy in Color Facebook page. And you should be able to find it at thenation.com. Let me just say one more thing about why it's important to look at the winnability of the state and to properly assess its winnability. And it really has to do with making the best use of the progressive movement's resources and making sure they're channeled to the right places, people, and contests, right? So there's a very natural human tendency, particularly now with so much small online small-dollar um, giving that's very enthusiasm-driven, that you can people get excited about a candidate, a candidate who has a great ad or has a good profile, and people all over the country will then rally behind that. And there was a really you know, uh, startling example of that in 2018 
in Wisconsin, right? Paul Ryan was the Speaker of the House. So he was challenged um, by Randy Bryce, who was an iron worker, Democrat iron worker um, in Wisconsin. Um, and then at some level, it did kind of force Ryan to decide not to run, but he still had a Republican, you know, in that seat. So the Democrat, Randy Bryce, with his, you know, very inspiring, hard-hitting ad, raised $9 million from people all over the country. But he still lost by 40,000 votes because the underlying composition of the electorate was never that favorable, and certainly not nearly as favorable as the California 21 district, where Communities for New California elected T.J. Cox, and for a lot less money. And so you're also seeing the same thing play out in Texas, right, where the Democratic Senate uh, Campaign Committee, the official body of the Democratic Party in D.C., is backing a candidate, a white woman, who was a helicopter fighter pilot, because they think that's going to help appeal to moderate white voters. So that's about biography and not math. The upside in Texas, as Julia was talking about, is with Latino voters. And so in terms of trying to move resources, lift up people in ways that are strategically sound, that's why we were trying to put forward this level of analysis. So speaking of Texas, and this is turning out to be quite the Go Texas uh, episode, let's turn our attention there. The Texas Senate primary is coming up really fast, and the primary will be taking place on March 3rd. As Steve mentioned, DSCC is backing the white, more moderate candidate in that primary, but many of the progressives and people of color are solidly behind another candidate, Christina Sinsun Ramirez, who's in a tight race for the Democratic nomination there. And we were lucky to have a chance to sit down with Christina. She was in town last week, and we had a really good talk with her. Yeah, I'm so glad y'all got a chance to talk to Christina. As you know, I'm from Texas, from San Antonio. My family still lives there. And I just feel, um, you know, Christina is sort of the ideal kind of candidate that is needed to inspire and motivate folks there to take an interest in the issues and through that in actually voting and, you know, doing the things that it will take to carry somebody to victory statewide in Texas. And, um, you know, she's just got this really magnetic energy. And it's very clear that she, um, you know, has has years and years of experience in advocacy and really, um, you know, which requires people to be inspiring and bring people along. And she definitely has that that ability. She got me a meat eater to love eating gluten free uh, vegan cookies. Okay. And that's a lot. I'll go there. That, that is actually a lot. That's, that's a great, thanks for sharing that with us. Um, and I also think it's important that, that this is a very tight race. Uh, it's mar- coming up March 3rd very soon. There's a, the vast majority of people are undecided or not clear what they're going to do, but of those who are decided in a recent poll, University of Texas poll, Christina was actually leading. Um, so it's definitely up for grabs and she's got a number of key endorsements, uh, working families party and other progressive groups have backed her as well. And so she's really got a great shot. People get behind her. Okay. With that, let's go listen to the interview. We're really glad you could join us and be with us today because in this episode, we're looking at what it will take for the Democrats to win back the Senate and thinking about how to go about doing that. You know, San Francisco's former mayor, Willie Brown, is, who's from Texas, Mineola, Texas, right, has um, this saying that I referenced in my book, that the first law of politics is you have to learn to count. And looking at Texas, that's where counting becomes important in terms of looking at a whole victory piece, right? So I like to refer to doing a piece for the nation where I call Texas the great non-white whale of politics <laughs> with such an enormous pool of voters of color. Mm-hmm. 
and especially Latinos, right? So Beto O'Rourke and his Senate campaign came uh, within 200,000 votes of winning. There were still 4 million eligible non-voting Latinos in that race. And so we really feel that really nationally key to making breakthroughs is a demographic opportunity tied to having an inspirational and well-organized candidate. So we're really excited um, for us to get to know you better, for our listeners to get to know you better. And so looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me here. Hi, Christina. I'm um, also really just excited to have you on today and getting to chat and getting to know you better. I was really intrigued while doing some research about you, about your personal story. And so I wanted to hear if you could just talk a little bit about how you were inspired and a little bit about your, your background. Yeah, so I grew up, I like to say, in between the perfect trifecta, which is Ohio, Texas, and Mexico. <laughs> uh, my dad, uh, my mom's the oldest of nine kids from... Where in Ohio, I'm sorry. Uh, Columbus. Oh, okay. Uh, You're not from Cleveland. Ohio. No, I didn't know you were yeah. from Ohio. Ohio. I could feel that camaraderie, <clears throat> but right. I didn't know where it was coming from, so that must be it. Anyway, my mom is the oldest of nine kids from a very poor farm-working family in Michoacan, Mexico. And my dad's a white American hippie that met her while he was traveling through Mexico in the 70s with a a bunch of students from UT Austin. And my parents were both very progressive. I like to say my mom is an organic intellectual, so she learned about how the world works, being a poor brown immigrant woman. And my dad gave me my first books to read. I remember he was the first person that gave me Bell Hooks' Ain't I a Woman book to read Mm. when I was like 16 years old that really changed my worldview. So it was this great balance of lived experience and also um, intellectual curiosity learned through books about history and social movements and social inequality that led me to have this real drive to understand the world around me. So geographically, where did you grow up in this Yes, we um, would go back and forth to Mexico. I don't have, besides my mom, my only Mexican family. Um, She's the only person in our family that lives here in the United States, so everyone is still in Mexico. And then we lived when I was really young in um, Oak Cliff in Dallas. Um, And then when I was about five, we moved uh, to Columbus, Ohio, and then I was there until I was 21. And then I went back to Texas to go to school. I really didn't like Ohio because I don't like cold weather, and my parents had told me that I would love Austin, Texas, because it had um, year-round sunshine and lots of Mexicans (laughs) and great food, and so I moved there without knowing a single person in the city. I just packed up a suitcase and moved and um, went to Austin Community College until I transferred to UT Austin and got involved organizing and advocating for the rights of undocumented workers at that time. So then you wound up starting or working with organization after college, is that right? Well, during college, I so my first organization, I've led some of our state's largest voting and civil rights organizations. So for a decade, um, I founded and led this organization called Workers Defense Project right. when I was 24 years old and in my last year of undergrad, which is a great time to start an organization, I say sarcastically. Why not? But right, and it was... Uh, an organization that was focused on raising wages and standards for some of our state's most overlooked and mistreated workers, immigrant workers in the construction industry, which in Texas, the construction industry is not only the largest employer of undocumented labor, half of the people in the state who build our homes, our schools, do so without documentation and protection, 
but it is also one of the largest contributors to the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So John Cornyn has received, my opponent, millions of dollars from the construction industry while I was making $43,000 a year representing tens of thousands of workers in our state who lost their limbs and lives building our state's economy. Wow. I left Workers' Defense Project looking at similar, you know, to the work that you've actually written about um, and Brown is the new white about the changing demographics in the state. If you look at Texas, our political outcome should already be very different than the one we see today if it was just based on demographics. But demographics alone are not destiny. And so um, I knew that to change the state and the conditions that I saw in Texas, that we needed to harness the power of young Latinos, young people of color. And so I formed this organization called JOLT. And we grew really quickly. And I learned how to get out Latino voters. There isn't some secret formula. It's you spend money on them, Mm. you speak to them about their issues, and then you engage them and ask them to vote. Um, But I wrote there, I wrote Beto O'Rourke's campaign plan about how to get out the Latino vote in 2018, and that helped lead to a 250% increase in Latino vote in Texas. And I was approached um, in the spring of last year and asked by some of the co-founders of Texas Organizing Project, one of the big political progressive machines in our state, some of the folks that ran Beth O'Rourke's Senate race, um, and some folks from the labor movement, if I would run for U.S. Senate. Um, Because we have this massive opportunity in Texas. We are so close to flipping the state, but we also think it's... the prize is much more than just flipping the state. The prize can be rebuilding the Democratic Party and the second largest economy, the second most populous state in the country, and that you don't do that unless you have a real person that's been on the ground and committed to organizing around the politics that we see that Texas could shape for the rest of the country. What did, what did you learn from Beto's campaign, and then what is, how does that inform how you're going about your race? So I think there were several lessons from Beto's campaign, and and Beto ran a pretty great campaign across Texas, to be clear. You don't get within 2.6 percentage points of flipping the state without, um, one, innovating and trying to do things differently. One of the big things I think he did differently is he ran on a different message that people had seen in Texas. One, I think that there are two ways you make electoral change. I like to say there's the power of institution and the power of inspiration. And as progressives, I think sometimes we are better at the power of institution. So Mm -hmm. if we knock on this many doors, we talk to this many voters, we roughly know how many people will be able to get out to vote. On the other side is the power of story and narrative that moves people and allows them to believe a different future and possibility than the one they see. Um, And that you need a clear problem, villain, hero, and solution. And I think what Beto did that was unique previous to folks that have run as Democrats over the last 20 years in Texas is one, he didn't run as a Republican like candidate. Mm-hmm. And I think most importantly, he fully embraced the state's diversity. You know, as a child of an immigrant, he was the first Democrat I can remember running statewide that I didn't feel like was going to sell out my community once he got elected. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt fully seen and represented. He fully embraced the Black Lives Matter movement. I can't remember anyone running in Texas doing that. Mm-hmm. And that really helped drive up voter turnout amongst communities of color. Um, and then he dug in deep in 13 counties. You know, he did travel the state, but where they really ran massive field operations were in 13 counties, um, knocking on doors and having 20,000 volunteers that. Uh, helped us get within 2.6 percentage points and may, has made us the largest battleground state in the country. Yeah, no, my, as I mentioned, my family in Texas, and so my nephew, Chris, was on a 
a radio show around financial advice. He's a financial advisor, and once a week they would do this show with one of his friends, and they'd Facebook Live it. And they got contacted by Beto, who wanted to call into their show. <laughs> I mean, like his level of like omnipresence was rare, very rare, and very you know pretty uh, impressive in that regard. So, how have you structured your campaign then in that context, from looking at what he was able to accomplish? and then moving forward to um, what you're trying to do? Well, one, you know, when I was asked to run, um, I have not run for political office before. I had been asked in previous years if I would run, and I declined to do so. And I declined to do so because I felt like I could have greater influence on the outside as a progressive. But I also feel like we're in this really unique political moment where Mm -hmm. people are hungry for authenticity and for someone that's willing to say exactly where they stand on the issues. So that is my commitment in running in this race, is running truly on my vision for our state and having a plan and campaign that is just as ambitious and bold as I think Texans deserve their senatorial candidate to be. Um, And then my staff is really reflective of who Texas is. So I'm really proud that all of our staff are Texas homegrown, that we are majority people of color, that we reflect our state's diversity. And I think that helps us think um, differently than a lot of previous campaigns in Texas. Um, I think that was one of the really great thing about Beto's campaign is he had so many Texas folks on his campaign. And I think that we know our state very well and have a different vision about how we get over the goalpost than some other folks that may think they know Texas but haven't been there on the ground. So when you win the nomination and you're up against Cornyn, who's fairly popular within um, some of the polling they're looking at, how do you see both distinguishing yourself, what do you think you're uh, both the competitive advantages are against him, but also what is the policy agenda that you're going to be lifting up, trying to move forward? Yeah, so I think what's really fascinating about Texas is that everyone knows our other junior senator, Ted Cruz, across the country. But in Texas, John Cornyn actually has lower approval ratings than Ted Cruz, which mm. shocks everyone because mm. how could anyone be more disliked than Ted Cruz? <laughs> but Ted Cruz invokes passion on both sides of the aisle, and John mm-hmm. Cornyn doesn't. So he doesn't have that deep, loyal red base in Texas mm-hmm. that Ted Cruz does. So he's a lot more vulnerable. Um, that being said, you know, this is happening in 2020, not in 2018. President, our current President Trump is going to be attacking especially immigrants, children of immigrants, Latinos. And this race will be nationalized as soon as I am the candidate because you're talking about a race that is emblematic of the debate we're having as an entire country right now. You're talking about one of the states that is the most diverse, that has changed the most rapidly, yet is not represented in who's in power. So I think that they will immediately start attacking someone like me, a Latina, daughter of immigrants, someone that's mixed race that they don't know how to label exactly where I come from or who I am. And I'm going to lean into that fight because I think the fight we're having on immigration actually has very little to do with who came to the country in which way. I think John Cornyn and Donald Trump and the Republican Party are not just afraid of people like my 62-year-old Mexican mother, but they are deeply afraid of people like me, her U.S. citizen daughter that can vote and has a dramatically different vision for my country. So when I think about being in this position, that it's my job is to inspire millions of people across our state, black, brown, and white, the full diversity of our state, but nobody wins in Texas without driving up turnout amongst young people and Latinos, and I think I'm just the candidate to do that. 
So how is what has been your reception? I mean, the, you're right. You're, you're running at this moment where we have a president who rose to power demonizing Mexicans, who holds power by continuing to demonize, if not actually uh, round up and put Mexicans into. So anti-Mexican animus is the driving force of much of politics in this country right now. What has that been like for you in terms of being on the campaign trail and really just as a Mexican-American, period? You know, it's... Um I think about what the reaction my dad had to me running and the reaction my mom had to me running. So my dad was really excited and like wanting to volunteer every week on the campaign. Mm -hmm. And then my mom was terrified. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, my campaign launched the week of the El Paso shooting and she felt like, you know, I had a figurative and literal target on my back as I'm running in this Mm -hmm. state where there is so much hate and vitriol and targeting of people in our community. Um, But I don't think we can contest that kind of hatred, those kinds of politics, unless we stand up. If we allow them to make us afraid, then they win. Um, So I think a lot about that, but I also think that this, I have this unique place that, you know, being half white, being half Mexican, that yes, my Mexican Anglo, my Mexican and Anglo families were different, but we also had a lot more in common than we had at odds. That in a state as diverse and big as Texas, being able to have my own story be emblematic of our state, mm-hmm. that whether no matter where we come from, the color of our skin, who we love or who we pray to, that everybody just wants the same things for their children. And if you can get people to see their common interests, then you can get them to see their collective power. And so that's what excites me about this campaign. Um, And I get excited about being able to lift up a story that is about our power versus our deficits, uh, a story that's about our assets versus just always what we're up against. Christina, I wanted to ask you some questions that are, um, you know, getting to know a little bit more about you outside of your organizing work, outside of politics. And one thing that I'm really interested in finding out about you. So you are a mom of a two-year-old. And as a mom myself, now I have an eight-year-old daughter, but I definitely remember the toddler years. And I always say, um, you know, glad that's behind us. (laughs) But I am just, I can't imagine myself juggling work and as well as running for office on top of um, raising a small child. And I do, though, however, have been noticing over the past couple of years stories about um, the number of women who are doing just that. There seems to be an increasing trend in women who are mothers with infants even and toddlers who are running for office. Yes, yeah, so when I was asked to run, that was my biggest holdup. Was It really felt like it wasn't the right time for me personally. I have beautiful little Santi at home. He's going to be three next month. And the idea of being away from him was really frightening. But when I think about issues like climate change or the fact that he's going to be a young Latino man growing up in these kinds of politics, that the world I want to leave to him, maybe I am the best person in this moment to help be part of delivering that change for him. So that's part of what keeps me going. And, you know, I'm not independently wealthy. So For me to even run when I was approached, I had to bring my whole community together. I had friends that came 
came to my house and we mapped out how someone like me could run and be away from my home for almost a year. So how could we, who's going to mow my lawn? I had friends sign up to mow my lawn for a year. I had my best friend move into the house to let my dog out and check the mail. Someone sign up um, to help me clean my clothes. Someone sign up to help do the dishes. People signed up in my community to help me, friends and family, over the next year to make this race possible because the political process has not been built for us. But I think if we don't stand up and take up the space, then we're probably never going to get to a place where we have paid maternity leave. There are only five countries in the whole world that don't offer paid maternity leave. And the United States is the only industrialized nation. I think that's because we haven't had enough moms in Congress and the Senate. That's right. Oh, yeah. So we're just going to wrap up. And I was going to ask you one final question, which is, what do you do for fun? (laughs) Do you have (laughs) and or to relax? Um, So I have different I'm really into gardening um, and I've been trying to learn how to sew. So at heart, I I like to say I'm like a 60 year old woman. Um, (laughs) And then um, I'll go on runs. And then the last thing I do almost every evening to center myself, which is going to sound weird. I love watching The Office. (laughs) (laughs) It makes like everything feel like mundane and, Mm -hmm. and not that big of a deal if you watch The Office. So and you can laugh about your moments you have in day to day life. So that's what I watch. Great. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate you sharing with us. And uh, of course, you know, great good luck in the race. It actually snuck up on me. I kept saying, oh, yeah, Christina's race is down the road, down the road. It's like, oh, March 3rd is coming up. But I just want to thank you all, too, for having covered changing states like Texas and also an electorate that is such an important part of the Democratic Party that oftentimes is thought of as an afterthought thought versus like a centerpiece of the strategy for Democrats to win um, and also win on the issues that matter to our community. Well, we've been saying this message frequently, not always amplified. So hopefully there will be a senator from the state of Texas who will continue That's right. to amplify. That's right. Thanks for joining us, Christina. Thanks. I really left that interview with Christina inspired, feeling hopeful, And again, like I said, I just love knowing and being reminded that there's someone like her out there fighting the good fight. Yeah, what's particularly inspiring to me and most meaningful is how connected she is and comes out of the movements fighting to transform this country, right? So when I first got into politics, it really was the fact that Jesse Jackson's presidential campaigns provided a direct and tangible connection to the civil rights movement that motivated me and inspired me. I think that we are seated but we're really standing on someone's shoulders. Ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Rosa Parks. The mother of the civil rights movement. And I was actually there in Atlanta at the Democratic Convention when Jesse gave that speech and brought Rosa Parks uh, up up onto the stage. And I feel like the modern day equivalent of the Montgomery bus boycott and the civil rights struggles in the South is this fight on the Mexican border, where Trump's rampant racism, his drive to make America white again is taking place, often unacknowledged and out of, and out of sight and out of view. And so the people in the trenches who are fighting this fight, you know, my friends who are with uh, the organization Texas Organizing Project and other places, first put her on my radar around somebody to get behind because she comes out of that struggle with a very race-conscious social and economic justice orientation. And she mentioned she personifies everything Trump is demonizing. 
And I do think that she's correct. If she wins this nomination, it will become a national, symbolic, significant race around a person who is embodies all of the what this president is demonizing and is trying to base his oppression on. And it'll be a chance to fight back against that and assert who we really are as a country. And like we had mentioned earlier, the primary is fast approaching just in a little over a month, March 3rd. It'll be taking place and you can support Christina and learn more about her by going to her website, ChristinaForTexas.com. That's C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A for Texas, all one word. And again, uh, even if you wanted to just learn more about her, you can go check out her website. And we're going to be wrapping up this episode. And as we like to do each time, we like to close with a fun question. And so our question today is, what show are you watching lately that you're into? And why don't you go first, Steve? So I'm watching this, I have this, I don't know, odd whatever thing with this, they call Nordic Noir. And it's like these mystery series that are kind of based, uh, you know, in Norway and Denmark and whatnot. And it's almost like a literal escapism, right? So it's like at night, and it's like you're going away to this other place. So I'm currently watching um, with the English versus the bridge. It's actually, it's called uh, Brone uh, Braun. So it's this mystery, but it's actually extraordinarily well-developed characters who are quite compelling. And it is kind of thing like where I want to like both follow the mystery, but I also want to like spend time with these characters and whatnot. So I'm watching that um, on, on Hulu. I'm enjoying it. How about you, Julie? So I have been binging The Terror, oh which, God, <laughs> which actually came out, uh, I think like a year and a half ago, but a friend of mine just told me about it and I started watching it and was immediately hooked. So it's about this expedition from um, the UK to the Arctic in search of the Northwest Passage. And I am now like fascinated, totally down the rabbit hole on learning about all things Arctic. And it's got a little supernatural element to it. It's so good. So I recommend that one. But you won't sleep well at night for a bit. Just a warning. <laughs> Anything lighter to share, Shirley? Um, Besides I, cannibalism, very, no. <laughs> I have a very different response. I, you know, since I've become um, a mother all through the years, like I just haven't really found the time to watch shows. <laughs> My days get very full, and if I have any time, I do read. But I will say this: I, um, I did come across something on the internet yesterday. I was checking out. Um, this this show that apparently is a series that will come out soon. It's called Motherstruck. It's by, there's a spoken word artist who I am a big fan of, Stacey Ann Chin, and she did a Broadway play years ago, and she's um, a lesbian single mom, and it's a story about her journey on how she decided and got to the point where she decided to be a single mom, uh, a lesbian mom, and to get a donor and go on a journey of having a child and it's it looks fabulous. So there is a trailer online called Motherstruck, and it it has been turned into a an online kind of kind of I guess we call them TV shows, but a series, an online series that will be coming out soon. And so I'm looking forward to seeing it. And it looks like um, the whole cast is women of color. It looks very funny. She's very funny and very talented. And I'll just say if you know put that out there for anybody who also wants to put it on their radar to check it out when it comes out. So there's a spectrum of things people can check yes, out. Yes, mine's different. <laughs> yes. All right. 
All right, so that's all the time we have now. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded at the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.